ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Point Counterpoint. I'm your host, Chris Wright, from KUST, University of St. Thomas, Campus Radio. Alright, I don't want to do that for the whole episode. <laughs> it was fun for a few minutes, and maybe I'll bring it back later on, but let's... You know, let's just jump right into the... I think sometimes it's fun. I'm going to take these headphones off. I don't need those. Sometimes it's fun to start an episode with just a little poetry here. This is a fun one. You might even laugh a little bit, depending on how dark your sense of humor is. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails of their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but for the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and Cap, he says, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking you that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, It's the cursed cold. It's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet taint being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at that streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee, and before nightfall a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long li long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies rounded a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavier and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. 
and I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw it in a trice. It was called the Alice May. I looked at it, and I thought a bit. I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, I s said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I, f I found that, I that was lying around, and I heaped th the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared. Such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out, and they danced about. Ere again, I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. And the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heat heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile. And he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll be in the cold and storm. Since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, it's been the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have seen their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was a night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. So Sam froze to death, but the crematorium heated him back up. That was by Robert William Service, The Cremation of Sam McGee. Alright. Here's a Here's a poem called Luna Urbana. Disco perfecto de luna enorme y a fuego lento rozando. El horizonte sucio de la capital. ¡Ay! ¡Qué luna más hermosa! Dice ella, empujando el cochecito de niño por la torcha y espléndidos también los muslos. De los muchachos de Lisboa a una manzana que trabajan en la acera del kilómetro cero. La zapatería de neón donde se apoyan es escutando con la, ma la mano el fuego de extraños que pasean por allí. El cielo sobre las puertas del sol toma ot otro tono de azul. ¿Quién dice que no se convierte en el único ojo de la noche? Al escalar, palideciendo el mundo antes de cruzar el cielo de finales de junio, y abajo, 
hombres persisten dando vueltas por la plaza, las fuentes gemeles rebosantes de aguas luminosas de aquí a unas horas con el color, levanciándose la misma luna verá su figura pasando Neptuno el Ritz, los manos de color naranja que saltan de las camiones a barrer y pulverizar regando esas calles eléctricas. Now in English, in English, City Moon by Francisco Aragon. Perfect disk of moon, huge and simmering, low on the capital's filthy horizon. Hi. What that moon, what moon more proud, she says, pushing the stroller slowly down a tocha. And gorgeous too, the firm thighed, boys from Lisbon a block away who worked kilometer. This is a terrible translation. I don't like that translation. Well, this is obviously originally in Spanish because when you read the English translation, it doesn't work. I didn't think. Wow, that was that was a little bit sad. Here. All right. I've done that. How about this? All right, I'll do that later. Okay, I wanted to talk about an economic principle that was proposed by Duke University professor Timur Khan, and he came up with something called preference falsification, which is, in a nutshell, it's the idea that uh, in order to gain social acceptance because people have two main goals, it's the need to be liked and the need to be right. And in order to satisfy the need to be liked, people will falsify their preferences uh, if they feel that a certain belief is more socially acceptable. And I'll just re I'll read the definition here as well. Um, it's the act of communicating a preference that differs from one's true prefer preference. Individuals frequently convey, uh, especially to researchers or pollsters, preferences that differ from what they genuinely want often because they believe the conveyed preference is more socially acceptable than their actual preference. The idea or prefer of preference falsification was put forth by a social scientist, Timur Quran, in the book Private Truth, Public Lies, as part of his theory of how people's stated preferences are responsive to social influences. It laid down the foundation for his theory of why unanticipated revolutions can occur it is related to the ideas of social proof as well as choice blindness. So, right here, so uh, one socially significant consequence of preference falsification is widespread public support for social options that would be rejected decisively in a vote taken by secret ballot. Privately unpopular policies may be retained indefinitely as people reproduce conformist social pressures through individual acts of preference falsification. So, um, let's say let's say there's a dictatorship. I'm, doesn't matter which country I'm talking about, but we have a dictatorship. 
privately, if if someone were to express their true beliefs and you you asked them and they told the truth, they'd say, "Yeah, of course, I don't like the guy." Um, but publicly, when they talk about their beliefs in this dictatorship, in order to gain social acceptance or gain acceptance in some way, whether it's maybe they, maybe they fear the government cracking down on them, or maybe it's socially, whatever it is, people will say, no, we'll, we'll say, oh yes, I support the dictator, I support Chairman Mao, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. But that does not express their true beliefs. I think that's a very interesting idea. Um, let's see. Uh, so Quran has applied these observations to a range of contexts. He has used a theory developed in private truths, public lies, to explain why major political revolutions catch up, catch us by surprise, how ethnic tensions can feed on themselves, why India's caste system has been a powerful social force for millennia, and why minor risks sometimes generate mass hysteria. So people will start conforming to each other if they believe it's going to gain social acceptance, the caste system. People may privately believe this is ridiculous. Why is it that the people in the untouchable caste, or what's the other name for the untouchables? Um, there's another name for them. Uh, okay. It's called the the Dalit, also called Dalit, officially scheduled caste, formerly Hard Ijan. Yeah, the Untouchables, just the lowest of the social castes, just kind of ignored. The police don't protect them. It's just kind of every man for himself, sort of. You know, gangs, kind of rule their villages. It's really sad. But publicly, it keeps going on because that's the way the culture is. But here's the thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at a smaller scale. I'm not going to try to d- describe this with a whole country. But with a, let's say, let's say that there's a, there's a band playing us that's performing and it's it's good dancing music, but no one's dancing. Everybody's just sitting there, and eh, they're enjoying the music. Uh, I need this. I need a song for this example. Okay. So a song's playing.
Song's playing. No one's dancing. Then, then this goes back to social psychology. I think preference falsification has more to do with psychology than just economics. Well, actually, it's rooted in psychology, but it's applied to economics. So, like, it was developed by an economist. There's a lot of overlap between the different social sciences. But you have the one first adopter that starts out. He's dancing. Everyone's watching him. And it's still a big risk to go out there and join them. There's a social risk, you know, because what if what if it only ends up being you two dancing? What if it doesn't end up being a bigger trend in in this small area? You could end up being rejected. So it takes a, another brave person to join them. Okay, now you got two people dancing. Now, it's not really catching on yet. Maybe couple more people get in there they're still kind of brave okay now you got four four five maybe i don't know okay at this point people might start getting a little bit more and then it's, it kind of snowballs eventually it becomes a socially acceptable thing to do to dance so now even if they didn't want to dance in the beginning they're still dancing they're preference falsification they're falsifying they they're not they're not going to show they don't want to dance not outwardly. I mean, if you ask them, maybe they'll tell. They'll say, "Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really want to dance, but uh, everyone else is doing it." But outwardly, during the dance, they're just gonna be dancing. They're gonna think, "Oh, they wanted to dance." No, they, no, that's not necessarily the case. So this is a very powerful force. It's, it's been a major influence. Now, if I wanted to, I could read the beginning of this scholarly article about it in the economic journal. But I'm not going to do that for you because, I mean, if you want to read it yourself, you can just look up preference falsification, policy continuity, and collective conservatism, the, ec the economic journal, or... His book, P Private Truths, Public Lies. Very interesting. Or if you just want to listen to him on podcast, um, he's on The Portal with Eric Weinstein. That lie. Yeah, there he is. Okay. That's enough talking about that, I think. Me thinks. Um, actually, you know what I want to talk about now is a little bit more on the psychological side instead of the economics. So I want to talk about a little evolutionary psychology, which I think is very fascinating. And I was watching a Lindy Beige video, and if you don't know Lindy Beige, then you haven't truly lived um, 
Let's see if he's actually. He had a video called, If Fighting is Like Dancing, Why Don't Men Like to Dance? Actually, that was that was the tweet. His, the video is called, Fighting is Like Dancing, So Men Don't Like to Dance. But basically what he says is he's attributing an evolutionary basis to dance as essentially a way to find a mate. And... What's one way to find a mate? Well, you can fight with other with with other uh males for the female. Well, and the females are going, Oh, we can do that, but you know, there's a lot of um there's the possibility of getting injured or killed and that. We don't want to do that. How about we do uh well you you could just trial and error, just try to mate with each of them. But you know, that's that's a lot of work. So what what could you do? Okay. Dance. Nobody gets hurt and you can still see skill and all that stuff. There's there can be stamina in dance, depending on what the dance is, skill. And one thing he mentioned in there is men are interested in dancing well. Women are interested in dancing for the sake of dancing. You know, it's just fun. Men they when they do it they want obviously they both want to dance well. <laughs> don't don't misconstrue what I just said. Um, but they're more likely to say something like, oh, come on, come on and dance. It doesn't matter for good. Well, there's a big risk that you're taking when you go out on the dance floor because you could be good. And then in that sense, it's to your advantage because suddenly they can see you and go, oh, look, he's very skilled at fighting, dancing, whatever. You, I'm, I'll probably use those two terms interchangeably here. And he's got he's got the balls to go out there. So just going out there is gonna give you a little bit of a boost, maybe not a lot. But it's a big risk when you go out there. And so, um, who are the people that are who are the guys that are standing behind going, oh, dancing is for pussies and whatever. Those are the guys that can't dance. Those are the guys that are afraid to f- face the other ones that can dance. Okay. There's a big risk when you go out there. There's a, there's always a risk of rejection, and so, or not. Is rejection the word I want? There's a, there's a risk of failure, I suppose. But so that's why, in, there's different types of dances where, all all the dance is is just jumping up and down. Well, that's not gonna be as good for maybe dancers that are very skilled, but maybe not as good for stamina. So it's gonna so that was created by guys that weren't as skilled at dancing, but maybe they got a lot of dam- stamina and they can just jump up and down for hours. And so that's going to prove their worth as a potential mate. Okay? And then the one, and then the ones that fail are the ones that don't mate. And most guys throughout evolutionary history did not pass on their genes. What is it, like 40% of them did? Like 80% of women passed on theirs because there's increased uh, genetic diversity in mitochondrial DNA, which is passed from from mother to daughter. There's less diversity as 
as far as males go. Yeah, we we really have to prove ourselves. We gotta. It's hard being a guy sometimes. All right. Um, there's something else I was gonna mention about this that I got talked most up about as I was talking about another aspect. I forgot what it was. Oh God. Um. Oh yes, yes. So when a woman's picking which which dancer they want. Or I'll say fighter. There's some different there's some different options. There's really four different options. There's is it four? What is it? So there's the guys that can't that can fight. Oh no, it's whatever. There's the guys that can fight but don't fight. That's preferable because it means that they're able to defend. But they but they don't. Because they they don't go out picking fights. There's the ones that can fight and do fight. Okay, well those ones are gonna go out and pick fights and create a lot of enemies, and that's not good. If you're if you're the birth giver. There's the ones that can't fight and do fight. You're just gonna get beat up. You're just gonna be pushed around. That's not good. That's not any good. And there's the ones that. Uh, can't fight and don't fight it, you know. It's just a weakling. <laughs> but what you want is you want a good dancer that and because you see if the if they're fighting, it shows that there's someone that's willing to fight. So you don't want that. It's willing to just fight for no reason. That's why dancing is a better option than fighting as far as making a good mate. Is it shows that they have the skills to fight, but they will not fight. Unless necessary, they have they have the ability to, which is always a good thing. Okay. 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 I think that's all I have to say about that. If you want to watch uh, the the whole video, it's fighting is like dancing, so men don't like to dance, by Lindy Beige. Lindy, like the Lindy Hop and Swing Dance, and then beige, the color. One word. Um, what did I want to do? Now? Oh, yes. So, I think I mentioned this last week, that, uh, the, that we, that we've won the Tojo 2019 Rugby version we won that but then of course we lost the football version which is the big one at Allianz Field 38 to 20 I just want to talk about rugby a little bit first rugby 101 the basics rugby was first played in England in 1823 when legend has it, William Webb Ellis picked up a football and ran with it. There are 15 players and 7 reserves in a rugby team and it is played on a grass field with an oval ball. The ball may be carried forward Again, or kicked forward but must only be passed backwards to teammates. A game lasts for 80 minutes 
broken into 40-minute halves. The object is to ground the ball over the opposition goal line and score a try like this. Or more like this. I'm sorry you can't see this. It's kind of visual. They're sliding into what we would call the end zone. This is uh, Argentina versus the New Zealand All Blacks, which is a pretty famous team. The while defending their own goal line from being crossed by the opposition. And the same 15 players remain on the field regardless of whether they are attacking or defending. Putting some real pressure on the All Black line here, five meters away. Mario didn't see it. Sevilla pounces. Scoring a try is worth five points, and it also gives the team a chance to add a further two points if the goal kicker can convert the try. This is done by kicking the ball from the ground to between the goalposts. For example. And one more thing. The kick must be taken in line with where the try was scored. The other way to score points is by kicking a penalty goal. Awarded after an infringement by the other team. Or a drop goal. That's when a player bounces the ball on the ground before striking it. That's just a punch. And both of these are worth three points each. Some more Not exactly. Alright. You know, the, the New Zealand All Blacks are cool. Because they got this cool little... Uh, they, this little uh, ritual they do before their games, it's kind of a, a Maori uh, tradition where they do this cool dance. And then if you've ever seen the Maori like stick their tongue out, that way it's kind of an intimidation thing. It's pretty cool. Debating if I should do a rules video here. I don't think so. If you want to find out the rules, do it yourself. <laughs> but I really like rugby, you know. I think one thing that's really cool about rugby is the fact that the game just keeps on going instead of stop and start, stop and start. I mean, there is stopping and starting, but, you know, it's a little different. It flows probably a little more continuously than American football which I enjoy watching. It's also just a different feel of the game. First of all, that you tackle differently in it, which, um, if I'm not mistaken, I feel there's less concussions in rugby. Head injuries in rugby versus football. Let's see. New Zealand journalist Heather Ben Heather wrote a thorough expose of the issue, speaking with current and retired rugby players about their experiences with injuries and treatment. He cited the following sobering statistics: about 1,200 people suffering head injuries while playing suffer head injuries while playing rugby each year. About two-thirds of these injuries are either concussion or brain injuries. 
Uh, rugby players are believed to play more aggressively when using scrum caps, which studies have shown makes no difference protecting against head injury. Yeah, I've, of, I've often looked at those and thought there's not a lot of padding in that. The figures do not account for ongoing health problems, which cannot be directly linked to rugby injuries. In total, more than 50,000 people seek medical attention for rugby injuries each year, costing about $60 million. How does the NFL compare? 228 diagnosed concussions were reported during the preseason regular season of practices and games in the 2013 season. That's reported. It could. It's likely more. However, one-third of all NFL concussions are left off the injury report. That's an interesting statistic. So it appears that people don't report the concussions as much. Half of the time, injured players go right back to playing after an injury without missing a game. That's in, in the NFL. Since the NFL redrafted its injury-related rules in 2009, the league saw a drop in the number of players placed on the injury report because of a concussion. Uh, week 12 of the NFL season is notorious for showing a sudden increase in concussions. Experts speculate it has to do with how small, consistent blows to the head lower the threshold for concussion occurrence. And the same Auckland University of Technology report showed American football resulting in one catastrophic incident per every 100,000 players between 1975 and 2005. That's more than 75% fewer incidents than the index tallied in rugby. Unlike American football, rugby offers minimal protective gear. Interesting. Let's try to let's try to get a second opinion on this. All right, the Atlantic. Let's see if we can show the world how it's done. A true contest for possession. Here's how it's supposed to work. Crouch. Touch. Pause. Engage. way of saying slam together the ball is thrown into the gap between the front rows the two center players known as the hookers try to <laughs> snag the ball with their feet knocking it backwards where it's picked up and advanced down the field the ball now has been won Dr. Robert Bray is a neurological spinal surgeon and a former rugby player. A rugby scrum, when it comes together, as the forces meet in the middle, can generate up to 1.5 tons of force. 3,000 pounds of force. That's like giving a piggyback ride to a full group. The scrum is the thing where, like, all the players are, like, pushing against each other. On rhinoceros. But all that force is spread out over two teams. When a scrum collapses, the guys in the middle, the hookers, 
are in serious jeopardy. Just like what happens with my hookers. <laughs> that was a bad. Hookers are especially vulnerable because their arms are pinned behind their backs. When a scrum collapses, the first thing to hit the ground is the hooker's head. So that got us wondering, how much damage can be inflicted when a scrum goes bad? Can it lead to paralysis or worse? Our Hybrid 3 crash test dummy is about to participate in the most dangerous moment in sports. Three, two, one, go! straight to the ground. The dummy's head plows into the turf with 1,100 pounds of force. That's like getting pancaked by NFL behemoth Casey Hampton. But all the force is concentrated on the neck. What we saw with our crash test dummy are loads that would definitely cause fractures to occur in the cervical spine. And you could have anything from paralysis. Interesting. All right. The next moment in our countdown was literally that, a moment. In a split yeah. second, Brian... Was literally that, a moment. Well, you can tell he's from Ireland there. It's pretty obvious if you if you listen to it a little bit. His name is Brian O'Driscoll. Brian O'Driscoll's world was turned upside down. Turned upside down. Or maybe that's an unfortunate choice of words. <laughs> it's an event he refuses to talk about anymore. But that didn't stop you voting it in at number six. My next guest is lucky to be here in one piece. For Captain Brian O'Driscoll, the 2005 British and Irish Lions Tour was meant to be the pinnacle of his playing career. He was on top of his game, the world's best player. Um, okay. Okay. Hmm. I think I know what it's time for.
Alright, this should be fun. <laughs> this is the one. Actually, it doesn't matter. Let's see. Okay. Yo quiero hacerte tantas cosas sin demorarte. Quiero que te sientas cómoda si vamos parte así. Como tú quieras que te Soy de hotel fragancia Gasta mi despedida You to think that you are the one for me Left your baby mom knowing your card is your wife to be Ex had to be locked up but you came to set me free They say not my type but you got my type of this So answer this, can you hold me, can I trust you On the wrist, both arms, that's what you do A mansion on the hills, half half if you want it That's only if you want, I want to Miss me, bottom me up kind of sad I always pick these really hard <laughs> that's not really in the style that I like to do why do I do that am I just drawn to challenge what is up with that damn that's rough that is rough um alright moving on um, afterward from the Ketchup Advisory Board. These are the good years for Jim and me. The kids are in a program out in Oregon someplace. They're mad at us, but they've gone for years, years now, so no problem. Anyway, in this morning, I noticed the date on the calendar, and I said to Jim, You know what day this is? Saturday. Forty years ago today. 
think the front seat of 67 Mustang. We were parked at the beach. It was almost midnight. We've been to a movie. We were sitting at... We were sitting necking and our song came on the radio. If I were a, carp a carpenter and you were a lady, would you marry me anyway? Would you have my baby? And we tore each other's clothes off right there, remember? Barb, I never had a 60-cent Mustang. Whatever it was, an Impala. And I always hated that song. Not that night you didn't. You must have been tearing off somebody else's clothes in that front seat. It was you. I never had a Mustang. Had an old Volvo for a while, but it didn't have a radio. Are you sure? That must have been your boyfriend, Larry. No, that was you. We went to a movie and we parked looking over the lake and the stars were shining on the water and we were naked in the front seat. Well, you know, you're right. It was Larry. Come to think of it. Isn't that funny? Of course it was Larry. Oh, well, sorry. It's all right, Barb. I used to be tormented by jealousy and then it dawned on me. You had to mess around with some real losers so you could appreciate the prize you won when you got me. Ketchup is, is full of natural mellowing agents that help you to live in the moment and not agonize about the past. These are the good years. Here in Minneapolis, spring is here. And people going capless, flowing like ketchup on a plate of tapas. Ketchup for the good times. Ketchup, ketchup. That's always fun to do. Always a fun one to do. Okay, I am going to give a little shout out. Hold on. God. Okay. Hold on a moment. I need a. F Oops. All right. Why does it do this to me? Okay. <sighs> All right. I don't know. All right, let's go to Spotify. I don't know why it's being such a bitch right now. There you go. Chokroot is a new podcast that you're probably going to want to check out. It's spelled with the, you know, the uh, Spanish exclamation points there. The backwards, the upside down one and the regular one at the end. But C-H-O-U with an accent, K-R-U with the two dots, T. Chokroot. And awesome podcast. My roommate's there are doing that one so make sure to check that one out that's my little shout out for them just started it up and it's pretty good i listened to both episodes it's 
strong podcast, okay? An international podcast about cultural difference. And I'll be on that on, I don't know if it's the next episode or a couple more episodes down the road. We'll be recording tomorrow. Anyway. So, um, yeah, that was a quick shout out there. I want to talk just very briefly about wolves in Great Britain. So early, early writing from Roman and later Saxon chronicles indicate that wolves appear to have extraordinarily, to have been extraordinarily numerous on the island. Unlike other British animals, wolves were unaffected by island dwarfism, with certain skeletal remains indicating that they may have grown as large as Arctic wolves. The species was exterminated from Britain through a combination of deforestation and active hunting through bounty systems because they didn't like them killing livestock. And there actually is a move to maybe repopulate the island with them. In Scotland, during the reign of James VI, wolves were considered such a threat to travelers that special houses called spittles were erected on the highway for protection. In Sutherland, wolves dug up graves so frequently that the inhabitants of Idraculus resorted to burying their dead on the island of Handa, Scotland. On Idraculus's shore, the grey wolf lies and l- lies in the wait. Woe to the broken door, woe to the loosened gate, and the groping wretch whom sleepy fogs on fractious moor belate. The lean and hungry wolf, with his fangs so sharp and white, his starveling body pinched by the frost of a northern light. And the pitiless eyes that scale the dark with the green and threatening light. He climbeth the guarding dike, he leapeth the hurdle bars, he steals the sheep from the pen, the, sh- the fish from the boathouse bars, and he digs from the dead from out of the sod and gnaws them under the stars. Thus every grave we dug, the hungry wolf uptore, and every morn the sod was thrown with boars and gore, was thrown. Our mother earth has, had denied us rest on her grace's shore. The Book of Highland Minstrelsy, 1846, pages 256 to 258. It does not say who wrote that. In fact, I don't even know if that's supposed to be a poem. I think it is. But I don't think it's primary. I don't think it's only a poem. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's a good poem. I'm not sure if it's only a poem or what I mean it also shows some information too which obviously poems are able to do at times alright I think they've got their eye I wanted to remember no matter what you I don't know that she's going to be the party's cup of tea, but she's definitely interesting, which is why she's still in it. And, you know, she, you know, I, she I gets think a that lot some of attention. And, and, uh, where is it? There. I think the nominees uh, of the party from past cycles remain very important figures in the party, and that, uh, that Hillary would have a lot of value to add. Um, no, at the same time, though, she's not a candidate, and it, it strikes me as uh, a little bit 
inappropriate for her to be uh, commenting directly about candidates uh, since we're all Democrats and you'd think that she would be neutral unless she decided to endorse a particular candidate, which I don't believe she has. That was Andrew's, Andrew Ying's uh, take on Tulsi Gabbard's fight with Hillary Clinton. You've got a very good shot at winning this nomination. It gets better with every month. But if you don't, oh yes, if you don't, would you consider being a running mate, maybe to a Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren? My goal is to solve the problems of the 21st century. I believe the best way I can do that is as president. Uh, but if it's in some other capacity, I'd be open to that. Uh, the goal is really just to make sure that this country is in a condition that I'm proud to pass along to my kids. We all know we have a broken campaign finance system where there's a flood of money uh, and it's overrun our policies, our politicians. I know very little about the math bank, genuinely. <laughs> um, if it's the case that we have the rules that we have and people want to help uh, support my message and my campaign, uh, you know, given the system we have right now, they're free to do so. Um, but I genuinely know very, very little about uh, the, the math pack. I just hope that they, uh, that they are aligned with my vision for the country and they invest accordingly. So you're not going to try to dissuade them from starting this pack and continuing to raise money? I'm not going to try and dissuade them uh, because we have the rules that we have. After I'm president, I'm very happy to repeal Citizens United, try and do away with super PACs entirely. Uh, but given the rules that we have right now, my goal is to compete and to win, and so I'm not going to dissuade private citizens from trying to help. All right. Where'd that tweet go? Oh, there. So there's Tulsi Gabbard's attack on Hillary Clinton. Great. Thank you, Hillary Clinton. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption, and personification of the rot that has taken the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain from, from the day announced by a candidacy. There has been a... Where is it? Concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you, through your proxies and powerful alloys in the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that the primaries between you and me don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. It's a full-blown battle between those two. <laughs> we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. All right. This is going to be kind of a weird karaoke here. <laughs> Till my feet got cold, honey. Sat on the bank till my feet got cold, babe. 
Sat on the bank till the peak I go Let them crawdads jump that hole Honey, baby mine Got a man with a sack on his back Honey Got a come man with a sack on his back Baby Got a cousin man with a sack on his back He's got four crawdads and he can pack Honey, baby mine He fell down, he bust that sack Honey See them crowdheads back and back, honey, baby mine. What did the hen duck say to the drink, honey? What did the hen duck say to the drake, babe? What did the hen duck say to the drake? There ain't no crowdheads in that place, honey. So, it's time for a little quote here. I haven't done a quote in a while on the show. Actually, I have. I think, what am I thinking? I've done some. Here's a little, a little nursery rhyme I invented. Four little screws all in a row. Mama took the first one and stabbed me in the toe. Papa took the second one and stabbed me in the shin. And that's when I decided I would forget my pain with gin. A little sad. Here's. Okay, how about you? You could climb the tallest tree around and say you're closer to the moon, but really, the best way to get to the moon is to get down from that tree and get in a rocket ship. It's a good one. You know, sometimes we just get so caught up in trying to trying to get closer to a particular goal in one way that's maybe just just kind of sort of pushing us there just a little bit, but it's not going to go any place. So you just got to regroup and do something else. All right, here's that was from I don't actually recognize the guy. I just heard the Hubert Dreyfus. I don't know him. Now, some people... I wonder if he's related to Julia Louis Dreyfus. Uh, I know she had a famous father. Um, um, oh, no. Different, different Dreyfus. Okay. Well, now this one's from Mark Zuckerberg. Now, some people believe that giving more people a voice is driving division rather than bringing people together. More people across the spectrum believe that achieving the political outcomes that they think matter is more important than, than every person having a voice and being heard. And I think that that's dangerous. Just let that one thing sit on your palate a little bit. That's a thinker right there. And I don't want to tell you the answer, though. I want I want you to figure it out on your own. I'm going to be like a teacher who's guiding you to the answers. Okay. Now, I was going to read a little segment from my book, Hacking Darwin, uh, about genetic engineering, a little segment in that. 
I'm about out of time though. So I don't believe that that's going to be possible. But I think I do know what there is time for. All right. There's no lyrics. I don't know when to come in. I'll go with this one. Nope. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, If it's I feel like they gotta put some lyrics in if it's gonna be if they're gonna call it karaoke. It's just weird. It seems weird to me. I don't know. Am I alone on that thought? Here's one. And I live all alone in a little bellog hut we call our own. She loves gin and I love rum. Between the two, we've lots of fun. Ha ha ha, you and me. Little brown jug, oh, I love you. Ha ha ha, you and me. Little brown jug, how I love you. It's you who makes my friends my foes It's you who makes me wear old clothes Here you are so near my nose So tip her and down she goes Ha ha ha, you and me Little brown jug, how I love thee Ha ha ha, you and me Little brown jug, don't I love thee Tolling to to my farm, I take little brown jug in my arm. I place it under a shady tree. Little brown jug, it's you and me. Ha ha ha, you and me. Little brown jug, don't I love you? Ha ha ha, you and me. Little brown jug, don't I love you? If I'd a cow that gave such milk, I'd clothe her in the finest silk. I'd leave her on the choices head, I'd wake her forty times a day. Ha ha ha, you and me, little brown jug, don't I love you? Ha ha ha, you and me, little brown jug, don't I love you? That's a fun one. Little Brown Jug. That's a traditional song. 
That might have been Glenn Miller in the background, though. I'm not completely sure about that. But also the other one, Crowdhead Song, another traditional. Jerry Lewis has also done it, but of course he didn't write it. It's a traditional song. So that's going to wrap up the show for today, folks. That's Point Counterpoint on KUST, University of St. Thomas Campus Radio. I'm your host, Chris Wright. So let me get ready to... All right. So I'm about to end the show right here. It's been Lit Fan. Namaste.